You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is a brand new program, I hope. I call it Closer Than Mishpacha, because I'm here with someone that, in a way, I feel, and I'm going to be honest, often closer to him than my own family. And I think maybe the same thing can be said from him towards me. I'm here with Rabbi Eitan Kobri, who, as you know, is a world-renowned columnist and feature writer, especially for Mishpocha Magazine. Thank you very much for having me, Rabbi Ramel. And those warm sentiments are entirely mutual. So in a way, I have to say that probably every conversation we've had has always been important and often life-turning because although we were in yeshiva together, our sporadic interactions, I think, have always engendered in me something that made me think, some made me reflect, and sometimes even changed the path that I was going on. And I think those are the friendships that, although you don't necessarily have them in the constant way, like family, but sometimes it's even closer than mishpacha. And I said, I've got to get Eitan on the podcast to be able to talk about things, because as everyone knows who has read your column, uh, you are not shy about giving forth your opinions and ideas. You have done, I would say, and I'm not trying to be uh, to be machnef you more than necessary on a guest, but I would say that what you've been able to do is really meld a appreciation of the English language along with really cogent understanding of the zeitgeist that's out there. And you, I think, have done a masterful job of connecting it to what I would say are authentic, real Torah perspectives. The tightrope that you walk, I don't know if it's every week, but consistently is a very thin one. And it's sort of magic how you're able to make it happen because it could easily devolve into just commentary, social commentary, or it could be preachy, sort of obvious, sentimental type. I think you're able to really do that very well. And to have you on the program is really a great treat. Appreciate that. And if I can just chime in for what, just one moment and mirror some of those thoughts. I've never really had the opportunity to say this publicly, but I, I will say that good, genuine friendships are pretty rare. What's even rarer is to find someone who not only has those sorts of friendships, but for whom valuing and nurturing friendships is a central life value. And can't really say I have another friend. I have good friends, but friends who work on and who focus on and value uh, friendships as deeply as you do, I, I'm not sure that I, that I have any others. Well, look, this mutual appreciation society can't go on too long, but listen, it's tough. And I think everyone listening who understands that it's tough maintaining, especially in this world, it seems to be the easiest world to live in, but at the same time, simultaneously the hardest one to be able to connect. It's, it's such a, an incredible paradox, which we've talked about as well. But you're right. I, I think the main thing, before we get into the main point, part of what I want to do is a little bit of nostalgia with you, is not to allow friendships to just be based on nostalgic memory, but actually to be honest and recognize what changes are there and, and to recognize this arc of life, this great matana that the Shalom has given us and, and be honest about where we are at what place. I think one of the things, Eitan, both of you and I know, and we talked about so much in the past, but I think we both live it, is recognizing the ceiling 
of our lives and recognizing, being honest about what we can do, what we can't do. And I think that's something that we talk about, something which I was surprised hearing a little bit of your perspective. We all know that in the United States today, being televised in prime time and being obviously uh, perhaps on the, on the radio as well, and probably being analyzed in hundreds of thousands of podcasts are the January 6th hearings, the hearings that I assume it's a Senate and House of Representatives combination, right? Or is it only the Senate? It's actually in, in, it's in the House. It's, it's being conducted by Congress uh, people. Okay, that shows you how much homework I did on this. <laughs> but I know that this is really something that uh, we are hearing a lot about in what's called, I guess, the standard media. They are trumpeting almost every session. I think it's the eighth major sessions. I don't know exactly. I think it was the eighth session. And now each one is somehow crucial in building a case about the former President Trump's complicity and sketching the arc of the crimes that he might be guilty of. So I have to tell you that I've sort of ignored it. I have not really been listening. I mean, I heard, oh, there's a bombshell. There's something that was heard. To me, it seems to be like background noise. And I know that you told me yesterday that you feel that there's something important about it. So why don't you start holding forth on what you think is important for us, obviously, as Orthodox Jews, to garner from what's going on in these sessions? Sure. It's kind of easy to distill what it is that's important about these hearings, because it can be encapsulated in one word, which is uh, hard to think of a more important and central word for us as Jews, as Torah Jews. Uh, that word is truth. For me, in most of the writing I do for that column, for my weekly opinion column, I deal with issues that I feel are, are of great importance to us as religious Jews, important to all Jews, but certainly to religious Jews. Sometimes the, the connection of a particular issue to us as Jews may not be obvious uh, or may seem tenuous, but by and large, for me, the connection is clear, and I try to make it clear in, in my column. Sometimes I have to do it more subtly. I have to proceed gingerly because of constraints that I have, part of the publication, the part of perhaps what public reaction would be. I'm always mindful of Tazal's admonition of, I try to put a lot of thought into how to phrase things so that they will get a, a that hopefully get a hearing on the part of readers. But in this case, it's rather straightforward. I think it's altogether possible that if you buttonholed 10 from Jews on the street in any neighborhood, any city across the country, and ask them, what, what are the five most important Jewish issues in, in the news cycle today? I'm not sure. I'm not, just not sure how many of them would name the political climate the state of politics in the country today, or would name the events that are at the core of the January 6th hearings. For me, it's not only on the list, but it's probably number one. It's infinitely more important to me than so many of the other culture war issues that get uh, from Jews up and dreaming uh, in their pews, uh, whether it's uh, critical race theory or gender issues or abortion, whatever it may be. Me, the, the number one issue far and away is that of establishing truth, truth, and also a, a, a national climate of tolerance, of security, of possibility for Americans to live together amicably and with uh, some measure of acceptance. 
which depends on, on the existence of truth. So for me, the number one issue in the country today is that of truth and, and the attacks on truth that exist, the attempts to actually do away with the very concept of truth. Okay, well, look, you know, your use of the word infinitely has really made me sit back in a little bit of, of, of shock, especially as we've talked about the incredible sea change about gender issues to the point that I see it as a big threatening monster to so many orthodox institutions. And, and I want to get back to that in a couple of minutes. But look, let's be honest. I mean, we, we don't have to be honest about it. It's, as we say in Chazal, Poshit, you know, the man was a chakram from day one. We know that the man was not shy to even say, forget about his grubkite. We know he lied about almost every aspect about himself. He lies to himself about himself. It's like Pshita, Michael Mashmala. So, I mean, I, I think both of us know that the slavish sort of like adherence in the Orthodox world to Trump was just riding the, I guess, the golden goose or however, whatever metaphor you want to use, was that this was someone who we could, you know, ride maybe because of Jared, because of Ivanka, and get positive things out. Is there any suffix that he's a chakran and somewhat deranged human being? I mean, this we all know, right? So it's not like I have a statue of Trump uh, that I don't want anybody to defile. <laughs> I know he was a, a garnish, and I know that he was Meshuga, et cetera. But why is it important for me to hear it again? It's like a double portion. So this is not at all about Donald J. Trump. This is about an American populace, an American citizenry, which to this day, at a point at which just taking now, just focusing in on just one lie, we'll call it the big lie, the notion that the 2020 election was stolen, that the current president is an illegitimately elected president, that actually Donald Trump won by millions of votes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something which, and I'm going to throw one of my explosive charges out there. I've done I would say zero research on the foundation of the number 6 million in terms of the Kurbanis that were killed in the Holocaust. So I don't know anything about what was scholarly, uh, I'm sure there are, there are reams of scholarly research supporting or attacking that number. But I do know a lot about the 2020 election. And I would say that it's likely that there is more evidence that the 2020 election was not in fact stolen and that fraud did not occur on any kind of scale that could possibly affect the results of that election, there's more evidence for that than there is evidence that six million Kobanis were killed in the Holocaust. Have I ever had a waking day in my, I won't say how many decades, in which I've ever doubted the reality of the Holocaust? No. Never have, never will. Frankly, I don't care about that evidence. That's why I've never explored it. It's irrelevant to me there is more evidence that the 2020 election was a legitimate one than there is for the numbers that, that are bandied about about the Holocaust or the reality of the Holocaust. So we're, what we're talking about here is not Donald J. Trump. We're talking about what to this day, the, the three quarters of Republican voters that all the various, that the Pew and Gallup and, and various surveys show to this day believe that the election was stolen. After almost the entirety of the Republican establishment, when I say the establishment, what I mean is the institutions to whom we vouchsafe 
the determination of, of what is true and what is false in society. The Department of Justice, the Attorney General, the intelligence community, the Department of Homeland Security, the election of the officials, the election apparatus. I'm not talking about the Democratic ones, I'm talking about the Republican ones. The ones who supported Donald Trump until November 3rd, 2020 or, or January 6th, 2021. All of them, all of them have come out in favor of saying that there was no fraud, wide-scale fraud. I mean, his attorney general, yeah, William Barr, who was obviously a, a Trump supporter. and All of them. And that, by the way, that's what the January 6th uh, hearings have showcased, because I don't think there's been a single Democrat, forget about a progressive Democrat, there's been a single Democrat. It's all been from within his circle, his closest campaign advisors, his attorney general, his personal White House counsel, Patsy Polonia. Well, I mean, that has been the genius, really, of the January 6th hearings. But again, to return to, to, to my point, my point is, as you say, Trump, it's really not worth spending the breath on the man. It's about the 75% of Republican voters. And now, in a whisper, I'll add, and probably, probably a frighteningly large percentage of Unzura, of the people that I dive in and learn with, are among those 75%. That's what I mean when I talk about truth as being the number one Jewish issue for us today. And I can elaborate on that if you'd like. Yeah, look, let me just push back a little bit. The idea of what does it mean the election was stolen? Clearly, and, and you know this because you work for a media outlet. It's obviously a different type of media outlet that's run completely different than others. But you know that there was sort of like an agreement among most of the media to do what they could to squash any positive things about Trump to, in a way, try to blast consistently. And I'm not saying that that was a terrible stratagem that they had, but there was, and I think this, this came out, like an understanding, whether it was Time Magazine or The New Yorker or The New York Times or whatever, any of the big giants in the internet world and in the media to try to create as much of a negative personality as possible. I think there was a sense that America would suffer terribly if this man would get reelected. Things would go from bad to worse. And it was a, just a constant array of negative things, especially, and, and it's, it's all in our collective memory, of the idea that he's responsible for the deaths of COVID and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't know what sort of backroom deals might've been had, but I agree with you. I think that people don't necessarily I'm not talking about the 2000 mules or whatever it is that they had that documentary recently that that it was all this you know election harvesting and balloting harvesting. I'm talking about the sense that there was a concentrated effort to do whatever it could that Joe Q public should get the impression that this man has to be stopped. This man is a threat to your life and everybody in lockstep kept on beaming that message to try to do what they could in every type of reportage to frame him in the worst possible way. And even if there were positive things in what his administration had done to downplay those and to spin the news, not as the reported facts and what was going on, but as opinion about another brick in this insane man's wall. And in that sense, there was, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy, but there was sort of like an agreement that this is bad for our country to have this man there. And in that way, JQ Public said, okay, look, I got to do the right thing. And that, in a way, 
nudged and shifted so many votes away from Trump because people did not hear about the foreign policy successes. People were not able to hear a more balanced sense of, okay, well, nobody really knows what's going on with COVID. The big target was circled around his face and every possible dart was thrown directly there that he's the one why your grandmother is dying or why you can't see her or something like that. And that was a stratagem that worked. So in that sense, there was, I think, uh, Eitan, like I said, not a conspiracy, but there was a concentrated effort. Does that mean it was stolen? No. <laughs> it's Trump's own fault. I'm not saying that I have Rahmanis for him. When you stir the pot the way you do, when you act as an aggressive buffoon, when you consistently do things like that, it'll come back to haunt you. It'll come back, come back at you. But I think when you say Unzer, maybe the Unzer are upset how negatively he was portrayed. You are raising a question of media bias. Now, we can have an entire session, maybe you'd like to, about media bias, media bias in the secular media, in American society at large, or we can talk about media bias within the firm community. But I must say that's entirely unrelated to our discussion. In other words, I have sat through all of the January 6th hearings. I have read through voluminous news analyses and opinion pieces, et cetera, et cetera, going back since before the 2020 election. And nobody has yet made the claim, even Donald J. Trump hasn't made the claim that the 2020 election was fraudulent or stolen because there's media bias and therefore people voted against me and I lost, but the media withheld the truth about me. That's not his claim. So these are two unrelated sugyas. One is that of media bias. The other is that about the nature and the validity of the 2020 election. And never the twain shall meet. The point is, Donald J. Trump is not saying, I lost because of media bias. He's saying, I won. He said it on the night of the election. I remember. On the night of the election, he's saying it's statistically impossible. In his tweet a couple of days before January 6th, the notorious tweet in which, in which he said, January 6th, be there. It'll be wild. Right? When he summoned the mob, he said, it's statistically impossible. Statistically impossible. And he became a statistician. He's not saying I lost, but it's because of media bias. That's what you're suggesting. Okay, we, we can talk about that. We can talk about the existence of media bias, and we can talk about whether, because of that, we can overturn a free and fair election. But that's not what he's claiming. That's not what any of his allies are claiming. Well, actually, some of them were. And again, I don't know if they're allies, but Kivalevich wasn't the Mahadish of this idea. I was aware of it because I have subscriptions to the New York Times and the New Yorker and all these things. And I was reading what was going on. I didn't read as much as you did. Look, let's be honest. It was pretty strange because we know that the millions of people, I think probably around the world, and the billions of dollars that were being pumped into developing the vaccine, it was quite interesting that it was only after the election that we heard about the vaccine becoming available. Again, I'm not a conspiracy person, but it did seem a little bit interesting that sounded like it was going to definitely come out post the election. Robert Vrabel, you're segueing into another sugya. In other words, again, so my, my point is that these are two completely unrelated sugyas. Well, we can do another session on media bias, and I'd be, I'd be happy to, to engage. What I'm saying is if there are people out there, even from the Orthodox belt, who feel, oh, I'm so mad that Trump didn't win, they might hold like I'm saying. If they're saying, I'm so mad that Trump didn't win, 
I have no problem with them. That's no problem whatsoever. I'm focusing on, and again, I have no numbers and there are no numbers, okay, about political loyalties in the from world, but you and I know, walk out on the street, walk into shul, walk into yeshiva, walk into the mikveh, and we all know exactly what the political loyalties are there. I give a daf yomi shir, as you did for many years, and many times, as you know, we try to spice up our shir with a little bit of political references. Listen, I know enough that I can somehow make a, a, a cute aside if it has to do with something. And I can tell you that every time I mention the current president, I get from a couple of people who are in this year. It's not even about the Go right ahead. Go to town on the and anyone you'd like. But the question is, are we going to adhere to truth? If you'd like, again, I can talk about, tease out a little bit about, I'm not sure it should really be necessary, but I guess in today's day and age, perhaps it is necessary to explain why truth should be a preeminent Jewish value. Good. Well, we'll go and sermonize a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah. So this is not about, about sermonizing. It's, it's really about talking about why should I, as a Torah Jew, care about truth? So yeah, the first one I'll dispatch quickly. Uh, and that is by saying, because it's true. I'll quote the words of the Rambam in Hilchas Tshuva towards the very end in Perik Yud Halacha Beis, in which he uses the phrase, it's just the most precious phrase, that a Jew who's oived me'ahava is oisa emes ba'asher hu ha'emes. Says he's a person who performs truth because it's true. Truth is self-justifying. We don't need any external justifications for truth. That's Hashem's seal. There's nothing more central. There's nothing more indispensable to Judaism and to the practicing Torah Jew than truth. So that's number one. But let's get more practical. Let's get more um, utilitarian, if you will. The absence of truth is perhaps the greatest threat that we face as Jews historically and in America today. Why do I say that? It's a threat internally and externally. So it's a threat internally because the question is, sitting around the Shabbos table, our kids, perhaps when they're younger, will drink whatever Kool-Aid the parents are serving. But then they'll get older, and they'll go out to the wider world, and they're going to go into the wider world, into the workplace, into academia, wherever it may be. They're going to begin reading other things than the Ated. And all of a sudden, their eyes will be opened to the fact that, wow, you mean to tell me I sat for several years listening to my parents speak with the greatest confidence about the big lie? They bought into a lie in which they opposed the first uh, attempt to block a peaceful transfer of power in the entire history of the republic. They bought into a big lie, which was the greatest threat to democracy that we have faced as Americans. They bought into such a lie, which had been thoroughly debunked, which is a lie which was a greater flight of fancy than than the notion of, of Martians having landed yesterday in midtown Manhattan. My parents bought into that. What else have they been telling me about the Messiah, about Maimed Hasinai, about Tereshbal Peh? You're literally playing with your children's spiritual lives, with the lives of your Talmudim and of your children. So that's the internal threat. That's the utilitarian explanation of why truth should be so important to us, besides the fact that it's Emes Basher But now let's move to the external threats. Number one, I'll say this. We Jews, you know, we've had a problem over our very long history when people try to propagate big lies. 
It's called blood libels that have plagued us from time immemorial. It's called the slaughter of Gentile children for baking matzahs. It's called the poisoning of the wells in medieval Europe. It's called in 2022, the harvesting of organs by the IDF of Palestinian organs for sale. Just open up today's Saudi paper and you'll find it there. You'll find the articles. And then, of course, above all, is something called Holocaust denial. Again, you want to play with the truth in that way. And again, as I say, there truly is far greater substantiation of the legitimate nature of the 2020 election than there is really for any of these other things. So you want to start playing with that? Go right ahead. But you do so at your great, great peril to the Jewish community. But then I'll move to what is perhaps even the greater threat, and I'll be very brief about it. And it's something which, by the way, in 2016, when I was writing about Trump as a candidate, I wrote two very, very powerful, if I must say so, opinion pieces. And then for the most part, I was tamped down. I was put on a leash. But I was able to get in those two pieces. One of them focused front and center about the implications of his candidacy for the Jews. And I talked about four elements that are salient in his candidacy, at that point, just a candidate which historically, the confluence of those four elements have posed the single greatest threat to the physical safety of Jews throughout the ages. I'll just go through them very quickly. The first is, again, the willingness to come face to face with truth. What he has done is, and, and again, much of this, by the way, is stuff that he has let out of the bottle. It's not that he has created the stuff out of whole cloth, but he has responded to darker forces that have always lurked and the seamy underside of American society. So number one, he has been the conspiracy theorist in chief. This predates, of course, his presidency, going back to the Barack Obama citizenship theory, going back to his talking about in 2001 about getting to the bottom of who actually knocked down those buildings on September 11th, et cetera, et cetera. There's a long, long rap sheet of his conspiracy theories. So an attack on the truth, not an attack on the truth, the attempt to obliterate notions of truth, standards of empiricism, of how one determines truth. That has been his genius, not attacking the truth. Hillary Clinton was an inveterate liar, but I wrote back in 2016, but when she testified at the Benghazi hearings, I sensed she was lying through her teeth, but I sensed a conscience knocking around somewhere inside of that woman. It was hard for her on some level because she still had notions of truth and falsehood. This man does not. It's hard to detect a soul, a conscience within. That's number one. The second is the notion of scapegoating, the idea of demonizing entire segments of the population, of the citizenry. He's done that with numerous, whether it's Muslims, whether it's blacks, whether it's et cetera, we go down, down the list. Jews are on that as well. He's come out and said so. By the way, he's made almost the identical anti-Semitic comments for which Ilan Omar up in Minnesota, he's made those same comments. She talks about, it's all about the Benjamins. He talked about as a candidate in 2016 to a room full of Jewish leaders saying, you know, you people are not going to vote for me. You want to be able to control your candidates. It's all about the money. But beyond that, the point is, he said as much. He said that American Jews are disloyal to Israel. This is his genius. He, he like turned things around. He uses the disloyalty theme but he like inside outs it so that it's like he's saying you should be loyal to Israel. You should be loyal to a foreign country. So like what? This is not the usual 
disloyalty charge, like what's going on over here? But millions of Americans sitting in pubs and darkened pubs in Idaho and in Alabama, they hear his words. They're on his 80 million Twitter followers. And they hear him saying, American Jews are disloyal. And guess what? When they come in with the pitchforks, eventually, God forbid, we should be protected from it. But eventually, when the passes, when the mobs come after American Jews, I'm sorry to say to all you folks in Lakewood and in Borough Park, they're not going to distinguish. You're not going to be able to wave the editorial page of the Ted in front of them and say, but, but, but we were monolithically in support of the man. No, 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 no. You're more Jewish than any other Jew. You're more Jewishly identifiable. You're going to be the first to be the victims when the passes roll in. So the second point is, first point was truth, conspiracy theories. Second was scapegoating and demonization. The third is the notion of attacking societal institutions. Maybe it's a, a cliche. The idea of when the mobs came for the Jews in the, in the 10 hundreds and the 11 hundreds, where did they run? They ran to the castle. Now, sometimes the local prince protect them. Sometimes he turned them over to the mob. But that was our last resort, our last line of defense, was the notion of societal institutions that feel some kind of responsibility to the citizenry. This man has attacked, has bloodied, has rampaged against every societal institution that exists, from law enforcement, from the 150 police officers that were battered, that were left unconscious, that were bloodied, who had bones broken and suffered concussions on January 6th, some support of the blue to the judiciary, to his own intelligence committee, to his own Department of Justice, to his own attorney general. This is a man who has not the slightest shred of respect or any deference whatsoever to societal institutions. There's no concept of law and order there, no concept of respect of that no one is above the law. That is something that Jews cannot afford. We cannot afford that. And the fourth is the introduction of the unpardonable and the unthinkable, which is political violence. The first appearance on a wide scale, the legitimization rather of political violence. We're not strangers in the United States to political violence, but the legitimization of it, the mainstreaming of it, the idea that now there's a whole ecosystem within the Trumpist world of legitimization where you have the Claremont Institute, a once respectable intellectual institute in California, which is now putting out so-called intellectual analyses by public intellectuals, by scholars, by attorneys, by PhDs, legitimizing the notion of political violence against entire segments of this country, including Jews, of course, not us Jews, but of course, the other Jews. That is something which has never existed in America. And the confluence of those four factors makes the existence not of Trump, but of Trumpism, which unfortunately is going to outlast him, as it looks, has made this, to me, an incomparably threatening time for Jews in America. And that's what puts it as number one on my list of Jewish concerns in this country. There are others. There are others. You mentioned before the notions of gender and how that's going to affect Jewish institutions and the Jewish community. Absolutely. What you really mean is religious liberty. That's what you really mean. And that's maybe number two on my list. And how far away it is from the first, I'm not sure. But the confluence of these four factors, all of which have come to the fore within the last five years, with the appearance of that man, with that man's ride down the escalator in the Trump Tower, there's nothing in my lifetime that can compare to that as a threat to the continued safety, physical security of Jews in this most wonderful of havens, what Rebchaim Velazhner called the last stop, the last stop, the goal is, may it be soon, 
the notion that what this man has done to undermining the foundations of that less distancia and of ripping apart the fabric of a relatively peaceful and tolerant America to our great detriment simply can't be overstated in my book. Look, I'm happy that we're able to unleash the eloquence and passion that is the beating heart of Eitan Kobri. But I will say, just, and I'm not trying to be a, a devil's advocate. Whatever advocate you'll be, you'll never be a devil's one because uh, that, that's not in your lexicon. <laughs> Appreciate that. Tell that to all our detractors here. But look, we know that the Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin, a Dayan who, a Rav who has everybody on his side is probably not doing the, the right job. He's just a pacifier and a uh, and basically a milk toast and, and a wishy-washy person who has nothing really to sell. Let me put it this way. I agree in substance with much of what you're saying. You know, I'm a Holocaust child uh, in a way. You know, my parents, Holocaust survivors who came to this country. It's hard for me to feel or see the glint of those pitchforks. I know about Charlottesville and I know about the yahoos that you're mentioning in Idaho and perhaps Alabama, a state that I'm pretty familiar with having uh, gone there a lot as a child. And I know what they said in Charlottesville, uh, they will not replace us. I'm aware of, even when Barack Obama was president, of a, a very large assemblage of right pseudo-Nazis or maybe proto-Nazis or beyond Nazis, who is more of a, a simon rather than a Siba. Yes, in a way, he was able, as you say, with a demonic genius to be able to tap and to actually do those dog whistles. I read the same article you did about, hey, you Jews, it's all about the money when he had a collection of people together. But I think what people are afraid of is that the woke ideology that in many ways fuels the non-Trump people is something that they fear, not just because of gender issues, but also many aspects of religious freedom and also something that has started to disappear in our lifetime. We grew up, Aethan, we're the same age. We grew up with a sense of Israel, look what they've done, you know, a, a pride and an understanding, not necessarily to treat the Jews as Nebuch victims consistently, but to recognize the legacy of their victimhood and to applaud what they were doing. I think what we found, and this is your friend in Minnesota and others, it's not just that she just used Jews want money, but also the sense that we're part of the oppressors, that we are oppressors and that Israel is, is an oppressive place, that the Jews in general are, and, and again, it, it might just be a reshaping of the old anti-Semitic tropes, but I think that the people who are on the left the people who are the engine of the Democratic Party are in a way, and that's why I think people are scared of this, they are promoting, I don't know if you call it an ideology, but definitely for us, a sense that, hmm, it's gotta be ultra-humanism uber alles, and Jews are definitely not the victims. And you talk about, uh, and again, I don't wanna to get too far afield here, you talk about political violence that is sanctioned. I mean, the BLM riots, was an example of political violence that was sanctioned and championed by many people. I mean, Michelle Obama and others, the vice president of today, they all went out there super positive. And if you talk about the truth, Eitan, we know what the truth was. The voices weren't heard. The buildings that were bombed, firebombed, the businesses that were ransacked, 
and oh, it was all peaceful, a little bit of outbreak. That was a pretty great assault on the truth itself. And it was whitewashed to the point that you couldn't even hear other voices. And therefore, I don't think the assault on truth is only one-sided. I think that assault on truth is happening for many of the people who are the ones that are leading the January 6th hearings. So I agree with you. I love the Rambam that you quoted, but believe me, a pox on both houses, as far as I'm concerned. Let me simply respond to everything you just said said now with one word. Amen. Amen. So here's the point. I'm happy that you included that last line about a pox in both your houses, because what I was going to say until you mentioned that was that what you're doing is falling into the single greatest trap that people fall into in today's times, which is the binary trap. I thought you were going to say, but Eitan, but look at what's going on the other side. And my response to that is, amen. All I've said in all of my writing in the last five years is exactly that point. All I'm looking for is not for people to say, oh, but the right is so much worse than the left, or there's really no problem with the left. It's all on the right. I'm looking for them not to look away from the truly threatening circumstances that are coming into formation on the right by saying, but look, a squirrel, look, a squirrel, look, 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 but look at the left. All I'm asking for is fair-mindedness. It's a rabid squirrel, Aethon. It's a squirrel with big threatening teeth that cancels out everybody, including podcasters. They're coming for me too. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and you never know when Mishpocha magazine, you never know. There might be a, a, a way to pull the plug there. The point is simply that the plea here is, please don't fall into the, the truly shallow binary trap, which is saying it's either or. No, 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 it's neither. The very essence of what it means to be a Torah Jew is to say, I stand apart. Torah is neither right nor left. If I was to encapsulate in one short, pithy phrase, uh, the theme of a great percentage of my writing over the last five years has been, Torah is neither right nor left. We will call out attempts to obliterate truth, attempts to create a threatening, to turn America into a threatening atmosphere for Jews on both the right, and they exist, they exist in great measure on both right and left. That's something I'm still waiting to hear from, from publications. It's something I'm still waiting to see turn up in the anecdotal surveys of from sentiment on the street. It's not there, River Vremel. It's not there. That's what's so deeply, deeply disheartening. It's not there. When I make my case, I'm met by, and this whole litany of what's going on, on the left, as you've so eloquently presented. And that's all fine, and I agree with it all. The reason that I focus my writing on the right is because I'm the only one, virtually the only one in the entirety of Firm Media, both the national publications and all the various local ones, whose training is focused on what's going on on the right side of the spectrum. You've got dozens of from journalists doing that for the left side. I think probably it's worthwhile for someone, one person, to be doing it on the right side. I want to move to one other topic, but I just want to just throw this in. that I, I've said on a number of these platforms, not that because I self-reference myself, it makes it any better, because uh, I don't know who's, you know, despite the download numbers, it could be people turn us off when they don't like it, but the download shows have been downloaded. But one thing I've said often is that, look, Trump's great legacy, I don't care so much about the movement of the embassy. I think you're right, Trump turned that into like a whole brouhaha as if, oh, look what I did for you Jews. I moved it to Israel, I moved it to Jerusalem, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But 
I do believe, and I, again, the assault on the Supreme Court, uh, notwithstanding, putting those justices in, to me, is somewhat of a, again, I'm not a lawyer like you are. I don't know if many people of our listeners know about your law degree. I have paid for lawyers. Uh, my child is one. But I do believe that that is a legacy that people will applaud Trump in the future for. Because, again, I, I think that they're, and we can talk about the religious freedoms and other things that the Supreme Court has done, but I think that's another reason why Unzura are happy, because they feel that the type of poskening that the Supreme Court has will be better for religious institutions. But well, that's a different program. But that's, I just want to put that out there. It might be another reason why you have people defending, listen, Trump doesn't care a key who's there. He has no knowledge about what a justice is. I don't think he even understands how the system of checks and balances works. I don't think he understands anything. But he was the shuyach for putting these conservative justices. And I do believe that their philosophy and ideas will make life better for Jews. I think the, the rulings, especially in the last couple of months, about religious freedom, about being able to do stuff, I think those will reap positive benefits for the Orthodox community. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think that's something. But what I wanted to ask you was this, and I want to end with this, and a little trip down nostalgia, like I promised. I respect you for what you're doing more than I understood before we started this conversation. Because I started this conversation saying, "Why should I be listening to this? I've got shiurim to do. I've got tiring I got to learn. I got your shalmis and chuvas I got to look at. Why is this important? Is something to know about?" And you've, I think, made your case. Whether it's watching the actual hearings or listening to them. Uh, and, and I respect that. I just wonder, and I don't know if you share this memory with me. Before I went to yeshiva in 1973, we both went into, we started ninth grade the same year together, right? 1973, we came in, you, you to Staten Island, I to near Israel. But that summer, before I went to yeshiva, I was glued to the television set, the black and white, the one that we had in our house, watching the Watergate hearings. And I have to tell you, I remember them so distinctly. And what I remember from that, and I haven't watched a minute of the January 6th hearings, but the comparison needs to be made because it's obviously a similar type of idea. I remember PBS would record the, because it wasn't prime time. You couldn't expect these senators to be sitting there at night, but at night you were able to hear the whole hearings again. I was a Lediger because I was just in the summer doing nothing. So I was able to watch the hearings live. Here I was barely 13 years old and mesmerized by what I was seeing. And what I was mesmerized by, not only was the legal process, the idea of the questioning of an actual courtroom drama happening. I was so impressed by the integrity of the interlocutors, of the people that were phrasing those questions. I want to tell you, Sam Irvin, who was the senator from North Carolina, was an inspiration to me to know Tanakh because he would consistently quote the Torah. He would consistently, in his head, he didn't take out his Jerusalem Bible to find it. And he would pithily quote psukim and verses that were relevant to an obvious lie or some other sort of thing. And I said, wow, these Christians, they really know their Bible well. And Lowell Weicker, who was, uh, I believe, the, the senator from Connecticut, who was so focused. Howard Baker was reasoned and measured and Republican and Democrat together. So to me, watching it, whether it was Alexander Butterfield or John Dean or all these big things, 
the process to me was so encouraging and inspiring about what the United States was able to do. Yeah, of course it was, yeah, we're getting Nixon, but it was also about the intelligence of the questions. It was also about the excitement of discovery and the fact that the country had this collection of elected officials that represented the best of our world. And I think that was the bulwark of my continued love of the United States. Now, is anything like that, I don't know if this is something similar to what you felt about the 1973 hearings. That's my honest recollection and how it's really permeated through my life. Would you say the January 6th hearings are anything like that? I would say that the January 6th hearings have been an amazing demonstration. have been extremely inspiring to me. Before I explain why, I'd like to talk about, just to mention, two ways in which they, they are very, very different from the Watergate hearings. And again, I had that same black and white TV in my house. I don't really have clear recollections of how much of the hearings I watched, even though I, I certainly was very, very politically uh, involved uh, back then. They were definitely uh, on my radar screen. There's no question about it. And I do recall being impacted by them and your reminiscences of Sam Irvin and, uh, you know, and company uh, definitely resonate with me. But uh, two very salient differences between them. The first is when you think about it, when you think about the, the crime, the crime that really sat at the very crux of the Watergate hearings, and you think about what it is that the January 6th hearing describing, they're describing a sophisticated seven-part coup attempt, an attempt to overturn an election and to prevent the peaceful transfer of power in America that went over the course of several months, involved hundreds of people, lawyers and state representatives and members, sitting members of Congress, et cetera, et cetera. When you compare that with a bungled break-in at Democratic campaign headquarters by the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And I'm not saying that Nixon shouldn't have been threatened with impeachment. And I think it's a wonderful thing that he resigned for the good of the country, the same way that he didn't contest the 1960 election. 1960, in which there, were, there actually was some significant evidence of vote tampering, et cetera. And he came straight out and said, I'm not going to do so for the good of the country. Same way that Al Gore did so in 2000 because they were respectable human beings. But again, the point is when you compare what it is that was at the heart of Watergate and what it is at the heart of the January 6th hearings, there's just simply no comparison. The second point is, it's a great tragedy that back in 1973, both parties had the sense that we have to come together again for the good of the Republic. And today you have an entire party which is own lock, stock and barrel, which is a cult of personality. Well, it's not my phrase, but some have called it Colt 45 because uh, Trump is, is the 45th president of the United States, Colt 45. <laughs> it's tragic beyond words. The notion that you have an entire party, which now regularly throws out, censures anybody who stands up for the most elemental truth, a truth that, that kindergartners uh, would, would recognize. Just this week, Rusty Bowers, the speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, a Mormon family man with about 10 kids, a man with as more bedrock values than, than, than many from Jews I know, who testified before the January 6th com committee, a fellow who has said that he would probably vote for Trump in 2024 if he went up against Biden. 
but a man who came out straight, straight out and said, that man called me and asked me to lie. And I just, I will not do that. My values do not allow that. This week, he was censured by the Arizona Republican Party. So that's cancel culture for you in action. That's what you get nowadays. So that's the great tragedy. The other, the other thing that separates Watergate from January 6th hearings is the idea that unfortunately, it had to be a few courageous souls like Liz Cheney and Ann Kinsner who go along with this. And they tried. They tried to make it a bipartisan commission and they were rebuffed. 34 Republicans voted for it in the House of Representatives. But uh, unfortunately, there's nobody home. There's nobody home in the Republican Party uh, today. Eitan, you have to admit that there's a difference between, I mean, Trump's out. He's not the president anymore. Everyone knows that. But he has an iron grip control of the entire Republican Party. I understand this is about practically sealing his coffin. The Watergate hearings were actually about a sitting president and changed what was going to happen. And like you said, Nixon, whether it was heroic or not, or he knew the jig was up, Nixon resigned. But the implications of this one, and that's the third difference, I'm sorry, that the most salient difference actually of all is, is that this is not about 2020 either. It's about 2024. We're literally talking about a situation where the man is going to run again. The man who tried to propagate the big lie to prevent the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in the history of the public is planning to run again. Can there possibly be, be bigger stakes for American society than that? But I believe, as the Watergate hearings taught me, and I don't know if it's true anymore because I haven't been listening, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm too busy to listen like you are, and then maybe that's a fault of mine, but I do believe that calmer, greater minds, the modern-day Sam Irvins and Howard Bakers will come to the fore and present not a, a left-wing Yahoo, not someone who's beholden to the woke cancel culture ideology or the right-wing uh, weirdos, or I, I shouldn't have said weirdos and Yahoo's the other way around. But the point is, and maybe someone who's more moderate, who represents values better, will rise and people will go behind him. You think that Trump at his advanced age, despite all his gesticulations and his twittering, the problem is he might siphon away votes from a real positive candidate who could be a leader of the free world. And that's what we want. We want a leader of the free world that has moral virtue, that represents what America was great about, and represents that spirit of the 1973 Watergate hearings. I'm hopeful that such a person will arise and that the people in the Republican Party will be able in the next two years to posit such a person. It sounds like you're much more cynical about it or... I'm not pessimistic. I just read the voter surveys. I'm just sharing with you the the results of Republican voter surveys. If I'm not going to go on, the, on that basis, on what basis should I operate? Yeah, but again, as Trump discovered to his mirth and happiness, a lot of those polls were wrong, right? He was supposed to lose to Hillary, right? But what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to suggest that 75% of Republicans don't believe election was stolen, that over 50% that he is not the leading candidate at this moment in time? It would seem, Aton, come on, there could be a way of Democrats, Republicans, independents, to try to pick someone who is clearly not just, I'm not Trump, but someone who has a vision for the future, someone who is not polarizing, somebody who represents, and again, the values that run counter to the wild you know, gender weirdness 
uh, the ones who were willing to say a man is a man, a woman is a woman. And that an election was an election, because that's a greater flight of fantasy. And again, you know, people talk about, this is crazy. They, they're unwilling to come face to face with reality. A man is a man, a woman is a woman. Ah, you see, I understand. I mean, but the notion that we should cater to an old man sitting at the pool in Florida, who is unwilling to accept the results of an election that he is a loser, right? After having lost the White House, both houses of Congress, that we are going to, we are going to mollify him because of his bruised feelings, because he's a snowflake. That's not a flight of fantasy. Only that a man is not a man, a woman is not a woman. But the notion that we are going to cater to his notion that the election was stolen, that he really won, that's a far more dangerous and far more egregious flight of fantasy, as far as I'm concerned, than whether a man is a man, a woman is a woman. At least as great. Look, I think he's Ivor Buttle. Right, he's Ivor Buttle, but he's the leading candidate for the Republican nomination in 2024 in every poll that is taken. Just like he meteorically came out of nowhere and somehow was able to, Chris Christie and Rubio and everybody else, and Jeb Bush, they all fell down like bowling balls at a bad jersey. All of, all of whom, by the way, would have picked the same Supreme Court justices. And uh, in, in, in fact, they would have done better. They wouldn't have farmed it out to Mitch McConnell. Trump had nothing to do with it. And by the way, Mitch McConnell did it. Uh, just to go back just for a moment to get in, we can have a separate session all about the Supreme Court and whether it's good or bad for the Jews uh, that you mentioned before. But just to get my one minute of equal time, those are justices that had nothing to do with Trump. Probably uh, 15 out of 16 of the other Republicans running uh, in, in 2016 would have picked the same justices. Mitch McConnell actually did it, whether it's good for the Jews or not. He did it in a very, very underhanded way in which he, he denied a vote to Merrick Garland a full year before an election and then got in a vote for Amy Coney Barnett three weeks before an election. I mean, these are dvorim Osu in American democracy. So if you feel that all's fair in, in war and politics, then go for it. But if you believe that there should be standards of fair play in American politics, then you'd have significant problems with that. And then we can talk about the most important question, which is exactly which of these rulings are good and are not good for American Jews and for Torah Jews. I'll just mention to you just this week, the Idaho Republican Party uh, voted for a platform which includes a ban on abortion, even in circumstances where it threatens the mother's health. Is that good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? That's an entire state's Republican Party making that their official platform. No abortions, even at the cost of the mother's life. Good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? We can talk further about it, but you know. Again, you know, Jews in Boise are gonna have to go to another place if they get that psaac that, that the abortion is a halachic viable option. They're gonna have to go someplace else unless the posse comes across state lines after those doctors too. You don't know what, what has been the, the whirlwind that has been unleashed over here, but, but that's for another time. Yes, look, I think we definitely have unleashed our own whirlwind of <laughs> conversation and, and I'm already <laughs> getting addicted to it. This is better than my coffee this morning. So Eitan, look, between the two of us, like I said, I think we should definitely try this again. Look, People that are closer to the Mishbacha can't stay apart. So hopefully we'll check you out pretty soon again. Thanks, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.